We come then to the scripture passage that, that we're going to be looking at this morning. We are now coming to Second Timothy, uh, really a continuation of the um, series that we've been in, looking at First Timothy, where Paul is addressing uh, one who is a shepherd teacher of the church. And so there is always a a, a message of, of direct instruction for those who are leaders within the church of the living God, which is the pillar and buttress of the truth. But along with what Paul says to Timothy, there are always uh, correlative lessons for, for all of us. And so as we come into the second epistle, uh, we would be trusting that God would be speaking to each and every one of us uh, as to how to live the Christian life in such a way that we too are part of that great purpose of the church, the pillar and buttress of the truth. So second Timothy chapter one, reading the first seven verses from the English Standard Translation. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, according to the promise of life that is in Christ Jesus, to Timothy, my beloved child, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father in Christ Jesus our Lord. I thank God whom I serve as did my ancestors with a clear conscience, as I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. As I remember your tears, I long to see you, that I may be filled with joy. I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now, I am sure, dwells in you as well. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands, for God gave us a spirit, not a fear, but a power and love and self-control. Let's pray before we consider these words. Our God and Father, uh, it is our hope and desire this morning that we will find again, uh, by the working of your Holy Spirit, your word that would speak to us in such a way that we would be uh, corrected and instructed uh, even reproved, but above all trained in righteousness, that we may be the people of God who are adequately prepared and equipped for every good work that you would call us to. You have intended the scriptures for this very purpose. And so we pray that we would listen and be not just simply those who hear the word, but those who are doers of the word and find in that the blessing that you intended for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Someone began by uh, sharing with you a story from my early years as a pastor. Uh, this was just a couple of years into maybe not even a year or so into my ministry in New Mexico back in the early 1980s. And uh, I received a letter one day and it was a letter written from a skeptic. And this skeptic felt that uh, his mission, he was local, lived within the town. Uh, he felt that his mission was to beleaguer uh, certain pastors, the pastors who would preach the scriptures as God's infallible and an errant word, entirely trustworthy. And uh, his letters would be a list and litany of the supposed errors and problems in the Bible. His tone was always chiding, uh, condescending uh, with this kind of a, 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 a message involved in them. It would be something like this. How can you, with intellectual integrity, preach the kind of messages you do? 
How can you be encouraging people to trust in the words and messages of this really terrible book? Well, my church secretary at the time was, was a young lady, uh, but a very strong Christian. And she was curious about this uh, letter that I had received one time. And so I, I let her read it. And oh, was she upset. Uh, her passionate love of Christ and the Bible were immediately aroused. Uh, she came to the defense of Jesus and the Bible so fast. And what struck me was how she analyzed this skeptic's problem. Uh, she put it essentially this way. She said, look, the Bible was written to God's people. We understand it because it was written to us. It was written for us. But he's not a Christian. He can't get it because he doesn't know Christ. He doesn't have a personal relationship with Jesus. He doesn't get what Jesus is saying to us. Uh, it doesn't make any sense to him because he's reading someone else's personal mail. That's how she put it. It's as though he was reading someone else's personal mail. Uh, no context, no real knowledge of the people involved. Therefore, the message didn't make any sense to him. Now, obviously, after all these years, I can tell you that that little speech of hers made quite an impact upon me because it gave me a perspective. It was a reminder that we need to see the scriptures. We need to always see and read the scriptures as personal writings that God has personally concerned for us, that God has, has written the scriptures personally as a person toward those who are persons intended for us, that in these scriptures, he has written to us of his love. He has written to us of the sacrifice of his son uh, in order to make us his children, in order to enable us to become part of his family, uh, to bring us into his house, into his home, in order that we might live with him forever. And, and when you think about it, uh, that's the great truth of Scripture. And it begins with the fact that we must always see God as a person, as a personal being. It's the great gift of our salvation that we come to know God in and through Christ in a personal way. That we as human beings, we who are persons, come to know God in a personal manner. Salvation brings us into this personal relationship. That's why I've titled this message this morning, uh, Biographical Theology, to help us to see that the Bible is God's great biographical story of his saving and adopting people into his family, and that our salvation writes us into the biography and makes us part of God's great story so that the lens through which we would read all of the messages of Scripture would be that of the lens of a family history, our family biography, as it were, where God is writing his truth into this great biographical story. Now, contrast that with Hinduism and uh, the Hinduism scriptures, for instance, the Bhagavad Gita. Uh, th there's nothing remotely like this biographical approach to God and man. Or think about Islam. If you know anything about the Quran, you know that the Quran uh, really has nothing like this biographical approach, a kind of person-to-person, -person, uh, God's love to man, uh, loving man, nothing like this in, in all of the Quran. This biographical perspective 
uniquely sets the Bible apart. And of course, the Gospels themselves are, are the greatest examples of this biographical theology because here's the story of God coming into human history, uh, God the Son becoming incarnate, and, the, and the, the Gospels are biographical accounts about him. So this idea of biographical theology is one that is intrinsic to the very nature of Scripture. It's intrinsic to the idea that, that God has his story, and God has told his story, and that story incorporates us. That God's plans, his purposes involve God's care and his love for those he's redeeming to be part of his family. And in and, and, and giving us this history, uh, God writing it in Scripture and scripturating it over, you know, 1,500 years, over 40 different authors, you know, principally in two different languages, on several different continents. In, in all of this, God is essentially conveying his message to us about himself, but he also does it in and through biblical characters and their biographical accounts as well. Now, we know this. Think about King David. Uh, King David has given us in the Psalms many uh, biographical accounts of his relationship to God. But we know that there is a desperate point in David's life when he was wickedly sinful. We know that he committed adultery. We know that he then committed murder to try to cover up that adultery. And in response to that, we have Psalm 51. It is David's great confession. It's David's great acknowledgement of repentance in his own life. And it is totally autobiographical. And yet, because it shows up in the Psalms, it was one of the things that the, the church of, of Israel, the people of God under Israel's time, they were singing this. They were appropriating the words of David's own biographical account for themselves. And the church has always done this. We have taken Psalm 51 and all the other Psalms, and we have made those praises or those confessions ours. So biographical theology is, is very natural to our understanding of Scripture. Biographical theology, and we see that here in these first seven verses. Uh, the Apostle Paul here is writing in these opening words about his relationship to Timothy. He's really sharing us some very, very deep things. And what we need to do as we come to read this is to recognize the Holy Spirit's inspiration of these words guarantees to us that God's intention is to speak to us through the relationships that are evident, the relationship between Paul and Timothy. We can expect that God would show us in that relationship uh, more of his love and care for us as he demonstrates his love and care for Paul and Timothy and 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 more of the way God wants our Christian lives to be conducted in terms of relationships with each other, even as we see the relationship of Paul and Timothy before us. Let's state it this way in terms of kind of a, a basic theme of, of these seven verses. Because God reveals his truth to the church through the personal spiritual lives of Paul and Timothy, biographical theology, we need to see that the life of a Christian is profoundly personal in its relationship with Christ and in our relationship with others. 
And so we began with verses 1 and 2. We began with what is commonly called, uh, with respect to epistles, the salutation. And the salutation presents Paul's personal resume of God's calling upon his life. But it also connects to how that calling is related to Paul's relationship with Timothy. Uh, now, the salutation to Timothy is just like uh, virtually all salutations that began letters during the Greco-Roman era. Uh, they had two primary elements. They would begin with a who am I to announce the writer. And then next, they would have a who you are as the recipient. And so first, let's consider when Paul declares who he is, the who am I part. Paul here does like he does in most of his letters. He, he states his apostolic credentials. Even to Timothy, who knew Paul's credentials very, very well, Paul begins this way with his status as an apostle according to the will of God. Now, and the reason is that First Timothy, though written directly to Timothy, Second Timothy, written directly to Timothy, is also intended for the church at Ephesus. Uh, that becomes clear later in terms of a number of things that the apostle has to say to Timothy. It's going to be read and shared to all the members of that church. So Paul states that he is an apostle that is one who has been sent out, one who's been sent by the will of God, which states then Paul's life's purpose. He's a messenger. He's an ambassador for God. And that calling is grounded in the gospel because the phrase, the promise of life that is in Christ Jesus, is simply another way of describing God's great good news, the essence of the gospel. Because the good news is that God has promised life eternal in the person and work of Jesus Christ, not through works, not through our works, but through a personal trust in Christ and entrusted in the work of Christ upon the cross. So Paul identifies who he is. He makes that connection to Christ. And so Paul is making that connection to Christ. He's connecting himself to biographical theology because he's connecting himself to what God is doing in Christ. Paul connecting his life, his story, to God's great story in Christ. So Paul's life's purpose is that an official ambassador and emissary of Christ who is his personal Lord and Savior. Now, there's something in this example of the Apostle Paul that we can claim for ourselves, that we can see applies to us. Even if we're not apostles, and none of us are, there have been no apostles since the first apostles, but even if none of us are apostles, uh, do we identify our own life purpose by the story of the gospel? Because we should. Because we must. Because if we are truly Christians, then we are part of the body of Christ. We're part of the church. We're part of the household of God. We are part of that which is the pillar and buttress of the truth. The truth that is in Jesus. The gospel changes everything about us. Because salvation, the grace of salvation, brings us into the story of Christ. And so we need to see ourselves defined by that story because this always gives us something to live for. And then the second part of the salutation is the who you are, which identifies the recipient, identifies Timothy as the person that Paul is writing to. But we note that that identification of Timothy is deeply, deeply personal. Paul calls him 
my beloved child. Now think about what this means. Uh, think about what God wants us to see in this biographical statement. Timothy was not a blood relationship to Paul at all. So in the biological sense, uh, Paul was not Timothy's father. But also, Timothy's no longer a child. He is by this time clearly in his 30s, maybe his late 30s. So Paul's speaking of his spiritual and gospel-based relationship to Timothy. He is a spiritual father to Timothy, and Timothy is to him a spiritual son. Paul has nurtured and discipled Timothy from a young believer and to the spiritual man that he now is at the very time that Paul was writing to him. But not only that, Paul refers to him as beloved, meaning dearly loved. Uh, Paul's care and concern for Timothy is very deep, very personal, and very evident. It's something that Paul was never, uh, never going to hide. It was not something that Paul was ever ashamed of. Uh, he was happy for the Ephesians to know that Timothy was a man that Paul deeply treasured, deeply loved. Now, here's the truth that we need to see because it's, it's very significant. In the plans that God had for Paul's life, God designed this relationship for Paul's behalf and for Paul's benefit with Timothy and for Timothy's benefit as well. The relationship with Timothy was a vital part of Paul's calling to be an apostle and an ambassador for Christ. Paul clearly considers Timothy one of the greatest and deepest blessings of his life. Now, something is also very true in our own lives. You see, God designs and puts relationship into our lives. Some of those relationships can be a tremendous blessing and a tremendous gift. They can be a very deep and significant part of God's calling upon our lives. You see, it's, it's a wonderfully deep gift from God to have very godly brothers and sisters in Christ, to have very godly fathers and mothers in Christ. You know, one time uh, Peter said to Jesus, as, as it looked like following him was going to, in one sense, take away every earthly blessing. And so in Mark 10, 30, 28 to 30, Peter says, you know, see, Lord, we've left everything and followed you. That is, left everything and followed you. And Jesus says, truly, I say to you, there is no one who's left house or brothers or sisters or mothers or fathers or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with pers with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. The point Jesus was making is this. Even in this life, God has planned to give Christians a great family of personal relationships with other believers, which would be so very, very important in a world in which true Christians are going to be persecuted. It's God's design 
that we have good and godly relationships in our lives. Now, moving on to verses 3, 4, and 5, we see Paul's personal remembrance to Timothy, his personal remembrances of Timothy. Uh, in these three verses, there's a kind of threefold emphasis upon Paul's memory. So in the first place, uh, Paul recalls Timothy with prayers of thanksgiving. And in the second case, he recalls the joyfulness of their relationship. And then thirdly, he recalls Timothy's faith and the faith of his family background. So look at verse three. Paul here gets historical and biographical. Paul places his own service to God in a biographical context of his Jewish and spiritual forefathers. Now, Paul testifies that he has served God with a clear conscience, just like his Jewish ancestors did. So Paul is asserting that in serving Christ, he's still serving the God of Israel. Paul is saying that the New Testament faith which he possesses and the New Testament church of the Gentiles and Jews together is God's story of redemption. Uh, it is the direct fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham that in Abraham and in the seed of Abraham in Christ, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. In other words, the New Testament church is not some secondary plan B. What God is doing in the story of Christ has always been God's plan. Now, having said that, perhaps more for the rest of the church at Ephesus than for Timothy, uh, then Paul writes of his constant unceasing prayers for Timothy night and day as an act of thanksgiving. Now, this act of thanksgiving is really the keynote that we should focus on. We note that Paul is a man of prayer. He has deep communion with God. We see this in the constancies of his prayers. He prays day and night. It's a wonderful pattern. But it's this matter of thanksgiving that we need to appreciate. Paul is thankful to God for the relationship that he has with Timothy. Paul is stating then that this relationship is God's gift to him. It's such a gift, such a paramount gift, that Paul thanks God for Timothy constantly on a daily basis, night and day. Now, in terms of thinking about that and reflecting upon our lives as Christians, doesn't this encourage us to look at the Christians who have been a part of our lives, significant Christians who've been a part of our lives, and to think about how they have been God's gift to us? To see that God specifically placed them in our lives? To see the spiritual benefit they have been to us? And to thank God for them? You know, here I am almost 70 years old, and I think back to, um, well, 50 years ago, God put a, a Christian girl, high school girl, we were classmates in the senior class, he put her into my life in a very, very significant way in order that I would come back to Christ and turn from the world and turn to Christ so that six months later when I began college, I was a dedicated, committed Christian who wanted nothing other than to serve Jesus. God did that. 
And then God gave me a Christian roommate. Hmm. Oh man, what an impact that young man, my age, you're older than me, had on my life. Uh, two years, I was discipled. His name was Paul. Two years he discipled me before he transferred from UCLA to Berkeley. Two significant years. I could name on and on all sorts of people through the rest of my life who have been such significant people in my lives as Christian brothers and sisters. Uh, even to, to the last 18 years here in Bakersfield, here, here in our church family, where man after man after man has in, in friendship and relationship with me has spoken have spoken God's gospel truth to me in ways that have changed me. And Christian sisters, too, who've been such an incredible influence upon me. And older Christian women who've been like Christian mothers to me. Mm. I am moved. I am moved by how incredibly significant and important Christian relationships are and how incredibly valuable these relationships are that cause us to be so in deeply indebted to those who have had such an impact upon our lives. God cares about these personal relationships, and he wants us to seek for those relationships and to pray for those relationships that will deeply encourage us in our walk with Jesus. And then in verse four, look at joy as the key idea. Paul found such great joy in his relationship with Timothy, and Timothy did in his relationship with Paul. That is why the last time Timothy was with Paul, Timothy was filled with tears. Because when, when Timothy left, he left Paul in prison. And Timothy had to leave because Paul was in Rome, and Timothy had to return to his pastoral responsibilities in Ephesus. And this is why Paul wants to see Timothy again, at least for one last time. Uh, he wants to have this time with Timothy once again because Paul knows that he's going to die. He knows this captivity is going to lead to his execution. He wants to see Timothy at least one more time. And, you know, that raises an important perspective on these very precious relationships that God gives to us. God grants us relationships that so magnify our joy in this life. And yet, the lesson is this. We are tempered in this earthly joy because these joys in our Christian friendships are for a season and a season only. All things in this life are for a season and a season only. Yet, while we can, we must appreciate the joys of friendship to the fullest that we possibly can because the great eternal truth, the great thing that's true for us in the gospel is that we may say goodbye for a season, but in the life to come, we will never have to say goodbye again. What an incredible thought. What an incredible blessing. Our joys in this life are for a season. But in the life to come, we'll never have to say goodbye again. And then verse five, 
Now, the key idea here would be biographical theology. Because Paul looks to the biographical history of Timothy's faith. Now, Paul is certain Timothy has the faith. He has that same faith that was first in his grandmother Lois and then in his mother Eunice. And so Paul is pointing out to three generations of the faith. And we know from later in this book, in chapter 3 of of 2 Timothy, uh, beginning in verses 14 and 15, that although uh, Timothy's father was a Gentile, uh, Timothy grew up in a household where his mother was a Christian Jew and his grandmother likewise. And Timothy knew from infancy those sacred scriptures that were able to make him wise unto salvation. And so although Paul was a spiritual father to Timothy, uh, uh, Lois and Eunice, grandmother and mother, were spiritual mothers to Timothy. They raised him up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. And so again, we see God at work in relationships, the dynamics of the family relationship through a godly mother and a godly grandmother, uh, the essence of, of biographical theology revealed to us, how precious this is. And yet, sometimes in seeing this and in reading this, it's hard. As parents, we're not always uh, able to see or given to see the blessing of all of our children coming to the Lord. Some of our children even turn away from Christ at a very young age and they grow up and they go astray and sometimes deeply astray and our hearts are deeply broken. But we must never give up the revealed truth in Scripture. God does and God has and God continues to work in and through personal relationships especially family relationships. He does work in and through parents and grandparents, but not always while the children are young. And therefore, as parents and as grandparents, we must never stop praying for our children and grandchildren, no matter how far away from Christ they may seem, no matter how lost they may seem to be to us. You know, back when I taught at uh, Bakersfield Christian High School, there was about four or five years where I invited a local pastor to come in and to share his story. And it was always during the time that I was teaching on the the biblical ethics of, of human sexuality. So he would explain the fact that he came from a family where Christianity was practiced. But at the age of 17, he left home. He went to San Francisco and he fully embraced the homosexual lifestyle. He was in it for nearly 20 years. He saw 11 of his friends die of AIDS. He himself became HIV positive, but his parents loved him. His parents prayed for him continually. They never disowned him. They never despised him. They never deserted him. They never believed that the devil was stronger than Christ. They never believed that God did not care for their son. They never stopped praying for his salvation. And one night, while he was still deeply entrenched in his sin, he met Christ. 
Christ met him. Christ changed him. God heard and answered the prayers of his parents for his lost soul. And so as parents or as grandparents, we must never stop praying for our children, no matter how far away from Christ they now appear, no matter how lost they seem to be. Because if we are not praying, who will? And that question hits me often. If you have a very dear friend or a family member or a child or a grandchild, who is going to pray for their lost souls? They were given to us. It's the calling for God for us to pray for them, that God might yet bring them into his story. And then lastly, we come to verses 6 and 7. And this is Paul's uh, personal response to Timothy, really a kind of uh, personal encouragement and recommendation. Let's read this verse again. Paul says, these two verses for Paul says, for this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Now, it looks like from this that Paul is really quite concerned for Timothy, concerned for him, concerned for his ministry, that Timothy would not suffer some kind of spiritual, spiritual depression or spiritual paralysis or spiritual deflation. We see this because Paul encourages Timothy specifically this way, to fan into flame the gift of God. And then looking back to the time in which Timothy was first ordained, when the Apostle Paul participated in the body of elders laying hands upon Timothy, and when Paul specifically as an apostle laid his hands upon Timothy, the Holy Spirit imparted a, a specific spiritual gift to Timothy for the sake of ministry. So in line with this, and what is we read in verse 7, Paul reminds Timothy that what God has given to him is of the Holy Spirit. But it's not a spirit of fear, but it is a spirit of power and of love and of self-control. In other words, the Holy Spirit, being the very bond of our union with Christ, is, is he who, as the Apostle John has told us, he that is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Timothy, the Holy Spirit in you is greater than the Spirit who is in the world. And therefore, do not allow uh, an attitude of fear to overcome you. Don't allow anything that might depress you or deflate you or somehow paralyze your ministry and your life. But you have the Spirit of the living God working in you and for you and through you, a spirit of of power and of love and of self-control. So why is Paul responding to Timothy this way? Why this powerful exhortation? What would have led Timothy to even be in such a state of mind or an attitude that, that Paul would be worried about this? Well, the answer is Paul's own current and concluding circumstances. Paul does not want Timothy to be depressed by his captivity in a Roman prison. He does not want Timothy to be defeated by the certainty that he, Paul, is going to die. And he doesn't want Timothy to be demoralized by how Paul's own current captivity is causing him deep and abiding suffering. 
because we read several things in Second Timothy about what's going on. In chapter 1, verse 15, Paul says that all those who are in Asia have turned away and deserted him. And then likewise, in the last chapter, chapter 4, we read about Demas, someone who had, had worked with Paul for many years, that Demas had fallen away, that he had deserted the apostle Paul, having loved the world. And, and so there are very good reasons for Timothy to, to have an emotional feeling that might move into fear and distress and anxiety out of concern for Paul. And, and, and to, in his own heart and life then to suffer a certain kind of personal deflation uh, that could affect the ministry. So Paul exhorts him, stay spiritually ignited. Keep the fire of ministry alive and burning strong because the gift of the Holy Spirit and the gifts given for the service to Christ are of God's power and love and self-control. That is Paul's posture toward Timothy. In essence, he's saying to Timothy, don't stop running the race because I'm about to finish mine. Keep serving beyond the time of my death. Keep serving for the purpose for which God has redeemed and called you. You see, Timothy's world was about to change. He was no longer going to have his spiritual father, his mentor, the man he loved above every other man. He was no longer going to have the Apostle Paul actively engaged and involved in his life. And this presented to Timothy a future that seemed to him very uncertain. But Paul is telling Timothy, do not give in to fear. God loves you in a very personal way. God's spirit will continue to work in you to will and to do his good pleasure. Do not stop running the race because I have finished mine. And do you see how that speaks to us today? Uh, the world has changed in these past six months. It will never return to what it was before. But God has not changed. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. The very love for us by God for us in Christ is such a personal love, such a caring love, and it has not changed. And though our personal and joy-giving relationships may pass into a different season, God will not cease to love us through other Christian brothers and sisters that he will give to us. For all of us who are Christians have been written into the biographical theology of God's great story in Christ. And remember this, in the final chapter, in the life to come, we shall all live together happily ever after. Amen. Our God and Father, please encourage us with how deeply personal this relationship of Paul is to Timothy and to see how you have reflected that in our own lives. You have loved us so personally in Christ. You've given us brothers and sisters and fathers and mothers in Christ, very precious to us. 
And sometimes the seasons change. We bring new people into our lives. But all in all, we treasure these things. We love you for these things. We're grateful for these things because it testifies to us that you are the God who has loved us, us, in such a personal, personal way. And you will continue to care for us even in the difficult seasons of life ahead. And thank you that it is the Christian story and only the Christian story that ends and they all lived happily ever after. Amen. We close with this hymn that is um, taken out of uh, this first chapter of Second uh, Timothy. A wonderful hymn of our commitment and trust in Christ. I know not why God's wondrous grace to me he has made known, nor why unworthy Christ in love has redeemed me for his own, but I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I've committed against the day. Stanza two. Sorry, I had to say the refrain there because, well, if you've sung this hymn as many times as I have, it's hard to sing the first stanza without the refrain. I know not how the saving faith to me he did impart, nor how believing in his word wrought peace within my heart. I know not how the spirit moves, convincing men of sin, revealing Jesus through the word, creating faith in him. I know not what of good or ill may be reserved for me of weary days or golden, of weary ways or golden days before his face I see. I know not when my Lord may come at night or noonday fair, nor if I'll walk the veil with him or meet him in the air, but I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I've committed unto him against the day. And now receive these final words from the scripture as God's words to us as he sends us forth by his grace. Be at peace among yourselves, brothers, while you admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Amen.